Let's change up the way you watch baseball. Introducing Change Up, a brand new live whip around show across the league brought to you by MLB and DAZN. Jump in and out of the best places they happen and get expert analysis from hosts who bring a fresh personality and new perspective to the game. It's on every night and available on nearly any device, smart TVs, tablets, mobile, and gaming consoles. Getting set up with DAZN is easy. Just download the DAZN app in the Apple or Android app store, sign up by creating an account, and then start watching across any of your devices. That's DAZN, D-A-Z-N. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Today we're going to talk a lot about the New York Mets, so uh, let's stop messing around and fall violently into this hole with Zach Graham. All right, so when we first started talking about what we wanted to put on the show, uh, we were in the midst of another Mets meltdown, and one voice cried out in the night to say, actually, the Mets don't have it that bad. The Nationals have it worse. So here to uh, expound on that take is my good friend, Zach Cram. Zach. And that's not only because I picked the Nationals to win the World Series, and I'm looking mighty foolish right now. Yeah, I mean, I I wrote something about this a couple of weeks ago. I actually have no idea how long ago it was. The passage of time is imperceptible to me these days. Uh, and I said, I think all five of us picked the who submitted predictions picked the Nationals to make the playoffs. And I said, and Zach Cram, who's good at predictions, just asked him, uh, picked them to win the entire World Series. So what happened? Well, I think it's a lot of small things adding up. There's not one key thing you can point to like i know the bullpen has been a big problem they have the worst bullpen era in the majors but it's not just the bullpen the lineup has been hit hard by injuries trey turner has only had 35 plate appearances this year juan soto was hurt for a bit etc etc it's like right now the person who ranks second on their team among position players in war is howie kendrick and Mm -hmm. howie kendrick is still a good hitter but He's not the guy you want helping to lead the lineup. No, that was not the plan. (laughs) And they just haven't been able to develop any consistency. I was looking this morning and saw that they're the only team in baseball without a three-game winning streak this year. Even the Marlins are on that board now after sweeping the Mets. So it's really hard to get any momentum going when you're losing every three days, if not more often. Yeah, uh, in my notes, I have a few notes for this segment. Uh, I have Rendon good, Doolittle very good, top end of rotation good, everything else bad. And even that top end of the rotation has had some weirdness going on. Mm -hmm. Max Scherzer, who is basically a Cy Young favorite every year, is two and five right now. And he simultaneously leads the National League in strikeouts and hits allowed. Max Scherzer, since joining Washington, had the second best opponent's BABIP in all of baseball among all qualified starters at 259. So that he's very good at preventing hits. This year, his BABIP allowed is 363. The Nationals as a team lead the majors in BABIP allowed. So the pitching has generally been fine if you look at numbers like strikeouts and walks, but everything they give up is going for a hit. And I'm not sure how much of that is a result of the pitchers, how much is the result of just a generally bland, if not bad defensive team, but it's combined to make a pretty bad formula and allow all these pitchers to underperform their peripherals. Yeah, I wonder if... I don't know. Like, so part of the problem, this is about the the part of the season where we, we start to 
um, or at least we're expected to draw big conclusions. But I look at the Nationals and I look up and down this roster. I'm like, I'm not really sure what like the big systemic problem is. Like, right. obviously, it's not hitting. And, you know, to a certain extent, some of their big offseason moves, they've got a lot of players who are veterans sort of at the end of um, not the end of their their careers, but sort of like tapering off of their primes. Um, and we're going to talk about Robinson Cano in later segments of the show, uh, but he's another one of those guys. The Nationals have a ton of those players. Jan Gomes, Brian Dozier, um, Howie Kendrick is apparently immortal, so this doesn't apply to him. Um, you know, Ryan Zimmerman fits this bill. I wonder if if maybe something's up with Adam Eaton or if it's just like a small sample. And like, you know, two months is still not a huge, uh, you know, it's, it's not a huge chunk of information. I think the big problem is they're nine games out of first place now. Right. And they also, in addition to seeing guys like Brian Dozier take steps back, Juan Soto has two as a sophomore. Mm-hmm. And he's still one of their better hitters. But there's a big difference between the guy who set records for doing what he did at such a young age last year. And thus far this season, he's just been like an above average hitter. And that's fine. But I expected him to fill in for Bryce Harper. Yeah. Uh, but his strikeout rate is up. He's hitting for less power, even though the ball is livelier. And I'm sure he'll turn it around. There are plenty of players who have struggled after two months once the league has adjusted to them. But they need him to start producing now. And I'm not sure when that adjustment will come. So what do they do? If you were in charge of the Nationals, what would you do? I'm not sure. They've kind of been proactive, right? They promoted Carter Keboom when Trey Turner was out and he proceeded to not hit for two weeks and they had to send him back down to get ready more in the minors. And it's not like they have other impact prospects necessarily they can call up. I think part of it is just hope for some bounce back to regression, like with that defensive struggle with the bullpen. They're almost like they can't continue to be that bad. Uh, Players that are healthier now, I'm sure Trey Turner will help this team immensely both in the field and in the lineup and helping stabilize both of those groups. But there's not much you can do when you're this far back. And it's almost too, it's almost too much of a gap now to hope that regression alone makes up for it. You have to almost hope that, okay, we play well enough for the next two months. So in July, we're in a position to make some trades to help us get the rest of the way. I mean, the, one thing that's sort of hanging over this team is what what happens if they get to July and they're in fourth place and Anthony Rendon's going to be a free agent. Exactly. Year. I mean, I, I hadn't really, I guess part of the assumption I was working under uh, this whole time is if they're going to let Harper walk, they're going to lock Rendon up. And that makes, you know, that that is perfectly a perfectly reasonable uh, thing to do from a team building perspective, but they haven't done it yet. Not only have they not done it yet, like, I wrote last year that the Nationals, once they fell out of it over the summer, remember they traded Daniel Murphy, they traded some lower tier guys like Ryan Madsen. I thought they should have traded Bryce Harper. And Mm -hmm. there was Oh yeah, I remember this. (laughs) And there was some reporting that they actually might have come close to a deal with Houston before ownership balked. I wonder what that precedent will mean for them this year. Anthony Rendon, who was frankly like He's older than Bryce Harper, but at least on a present production standpoint, is just as good. I wonder what that means for how they'll treat his potential free agency after letting Harper. Like, yes, they gave him offers, but it was the Nationals thing of deferring so much money that the present day value wasn't as Mm -hmm. extreme. I wonder how that sets the stage for Rendo. And another thing is, I don't know, he's 
What would you say about Rendon? Is he a top five third baseman in, in baseball? Top three? There are so many good third basemen right now. There's I a think lot. It's yeah, probably the deepest position. But even among that group, I think Rendon is so consistent. Mm-hmm. Like Matt Chapman is incredible. I'd like to see him do what he's done for as long as Rendon has, because Rendon, we used to think of him as just this really well-rounded player. He's one of the best hitters in baseball. Yeah. So I would put him in that group. Well, the reason I, I say that is, I'm for my money, the two best third basemen in baseball just signed gigantic contracts uh, this past offseason. And I don't know that I would want to pay Rendon. I don't know. Like, Within the, you know, we're with the stipulation we're operating under the economic structures that most baseball teams uh, operate under. And the Nationals are one of the few teams that spends up to and sometimes above the luxury tax. Um, but you know, I don't know if he's worth the Machado contract or the Arenado contract, but I, th- I think he's close. And I think that he's, you know, it's perfectly reasonable for him to ask for that if that's uh, the way to go, you know, but uh I, th- I think every day that goes on, every day he keeps slugging 700, the the price only goes up. That's where I think his age really comes into play. He's mm-hmm. going to be entering his age 30 season next year, and that's where uh, maybe like 32 is where traditionally a lot of the bad long contracts have been signed, but there's just less margin for error when you're signing at age 30 than when you're signing Machado, who is four or five years younger, because you're just missing out on those prime years and signing on to the back end instead. That said, I think the Nationals' concerns are much more short-term than what they're going to do with Rendon at the moment. Oh, sure. Because, I'm just saying if yeah. they if they keep, you know, if they're in fourth place and Rendon looks like he's going to walk, then there's going to be pressure on them to trade him. So. Right, and, and that's why I think these next two months are so important for them and kind of straddling the fence because you don't necessarily want to go all in if the best that's going to do is take you to a 500 record. So I think they have to see how the team is currently constructed can do until they make their, you know, buy or sell decision in July. Yeah. I think the, the play, I mean, apart from just continuing to shuffle in fresh arms until you find a relief pitcher who can throw strikes, um, is something like what the Rays did with the Tommy Pham trade last year, where, you, you know, you find somebody who can help you now, but also for the next couple years, uh, and maybe that means taking on a little bit riskier player. Maybe that means giving up a little bit more in terms of prospects, but they've got a, I mean, there's, I think there's pressure on this team to, to win now, particularly if Harper and the Phillies are the, the team that winds up leading the national league down the stretch or National league East down the stretch. Um, but so since this is a short term issue, what I meant by what would you do is would you fire Davey Martinez? I don't know. I think the stats of like, you know, Dusty Baker's teams always had winning records in the course of a month and Davey Martinez's national teams never have maybe oversell the difference between them a bit, mm-hmm. a bit. But I also think that just as a someone who isn't covering the team every day, I'm sort of just watching their games and observing what the beat reporters say. I'm not sure how that clubhouse is functioning. There was certainly drama last year with the reliever core, and that's why they traded Brian Kitzler and let Sean Kelly go, who are incidentally having pretty good seasons now. But I'm not sure if that has persisted. Maybe it's the kind of thing where you just need to fire someone to mm-hmm. spark the team, like how managers will get ejected to try and spark a team. I'm not sure how much that actually works, but 
in general, I don't think this is a Mickey Calloway situation where he's not making obvious strategic blunders. So I'm not sure how much shuffling the managers around actually helps the team. Well, I'd say like the I agree with you that the the difference between his month to month winning record and Dusty Baker's is more trivia than information. But like with a few exceptions, managers are just sort of there, you know, they're and they're the easiest part to change in and out. So, you know, I think that there can be a placebo effect of the the new manager bounce. And maybe that's just what gets you going to the end of the season. I mean, like, look at the Reds started three and 15 last year, fired their manager and Jim Riggleman, who's not like Earl Weaver or anything, who's got a long track record of being, a, you know, a managed to 500 guy, including in Washington, uh, wound up making them look pretty respectable down the stretch. And I just wonder if, you know, that's. This is an argument I'm I'm going to repeat when when Bobby and I are talking about uh, the Mets later, but I think you know the O three Marlins uh, bring in Jack McKeon just to and going on to win the World Series. That's just like it's there's a point at which it all being in the player's head or the fan's head or whoever's head like that transfers onto the field. So I I wonder if that's just like that's the one move you can make to just sort of change the narrative to a little a little bit, which sounds like a desperate thing to do. But honestly, like they're 19 and 28 and we all expected them to win the division. So these are desperate times. Of course, I think the counter to that is Jack McKeon is a story, but you had to go back to 2003 to pull out that name. Most teams that replace their managers midseason don't go on to win the World Series the I mean, most was, teams that <laughs> most teams that retain failing managers don't go on to win the World Series that year. So, of course, but I think the Nationals are, I, from an organizational perspective, are almost stuck in a weird bind where I think it's easy for observers of the team to confuse action with inaction, or basically, like I'm looking at the bullpen, for instance, and the Nationals have had bullpen problems for several years now, but. This isn't like a Detroit Tigers from earlier this decade situation where the Tigers just didn't try to improve. The Nationals have tried every single season, mm-hmm. every single July to improve their bullpen, and none of it worked. Is that the front office's fault for just identifying the wrong players? Or sometimes stuff just happens. Like, I thought Kyle Bearclaw and Trevor Rosenthal would be good additions for the bullpen. Trevor Rosenthal has had the worst season of anyone in baseball this year and then got hurt. So. And then you look at their bullpen, they traded for Sean Doolittle, who's been great, but the guys they gave up for him were Blake yeah. Trinan, who's been just as good, and Jesus Lazardo, who's now a top pitching prospect. So obviously firing Davey Martinez isn't the same as giving up a top pitching prospect, but I think there's some confusion of inaction versus action here, where sometimes stuff does, doesn't work out, and maybe the Nationals are cursed, but I think that's kind of what it seems like. I think that's true, and I think that that's a smart way to look at it. I also think that if everybody who followed baseball and interacted with baseball operated that way, we wouldn't do this podcast until the 4th of July. So like there's, there's uh you know, if, if they do make a managerial change, it won't be for, you know, strictly rational reasons. Cause you can't like, I, I think that's entirely right. I think they've made a lot of, of smart, proactive moves for their their bullpen since the Drew Storen incident. And none of them, not none of them have worked, but relatively few of them have worked. And I don't know why. I don't know what I would have done differently. So, 
And that's just not a satisfactory answer for good or ill. That's not a satisfactory answer to to take to the public. So, you know, I it's it's a tough situation. I there are some issues here that are of ownership's making of Mike Rizzo's making. Uh, that's one where I, I really I really do feel for him. So, yeah, that's where it's less satisfying for we as analysts, too, because it's much easier to point to three specific moves that ruined a team's chances at competing. Whereas the Nationals, it's like, I actually agreed with a lot of the things they did. It mm-hmm. just hasn't worked out. Sometimes that happens. So, you know, sometimes you you make smart or at least defensible moves and it, it doesn't work. And I don't know, like uh, accepting that is, uh, you know, a favor that that we can all do ourselves for our own, the good of our own mental health. But uh, unfortunately, uh, Mike Rizzo does not answer to just you and me. So uh, we will track the Nationals' progress or lack thereof uh, as they continue to to stay below the New York Mets in the standings, as, as the Mets are, are made out to be uh, just an absolute disaster. At least none of the Nationals players are falling into holes. Yeah, that's true. Oh, hey, do you want to take a couple minutes to, to rant about Wash U? I just, so Michael has been trying to get everyone he knows to watch college baseball, and my alma mater is a Division Three team. They had probably the best team in school history this year. They had a staff ERA below two, the best in all of Division Three, playing in an elimination game over the weekend. Their star pitcher, who had already helped them win two games that weekend, comes in for the save, gives up a two-strike, two-out, home run to a guy who had never hit a home run all season and they lose. And now I am out on college baseball. It is bad. I am turning back to the major leagues because, you know, there's no way to get emotionally hurt by baseball at the major league level. Yeah. That's I, my I do, rant. That's a, uh, I, I think it's a good uh, encapsulation of, of our relationship that, that like, you know, I try to get you into this, you know, sort of off the beaten path form of baseball. And you go so obscure that even I don't follow division three baseball. So I feel for you. I mean, I we're later today. My alma mater is gonna uh, gonna play in the SEC tournament where they are the number twelve seed. Essentially, they have to to win out to even make the NCAA tournament. So, yay! So congratulations to what's what's the the mascot? I don't even know the where the Bears. The Bears. That's a little disappointing. Quite bland. Feel like if you're Division three, you, you need to get a little more creative. Unfortunately, I think you know even in our conference, a lot of the other mascots are more creative. So, who knows? Maybe next year we'll get them. Disappointing. Well, congratulations to to the Bears for their incredible season. I hope you come up with a more creative team nickname, and uh, maybe you'll go farther in the tournament. And uh, you know, when that happens, we'll talk to you again. Thanks for coming on, Zach Cram. Thanks. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place where you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. And that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash R-I-N-G-E-R-M-L-B. 
ZipRecruiter.com slash Ringer MLB. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. The Ringer MLB show is brought to you by Burrow, makers of clever furniture designed for real life. And if your real life is like our real life, you're set to spend a lot of time on the sofa in the next few months because as nice as it is to see a baseball game, it's much better to see it in air-conditioned comfort. Burrow's design means it's easy to move and easy to set up. It features naturally scratch and stain-resistant fabric, sturdy hardwood frames, soft foam cushions, and a built-in USB charger. It's totally customizable, so you can pick from five fabric colors, three leg finishes, two armrest styles, any length, and add a chaise lounge or ottoman. One-week shipping is always free and comes with a risk-free 30-day return period. If you've listened to the show at any length, you've heard me talk about my Burrow sofa. It came in three boxes and took something like 15 or 20 minutes to put together. I've had Lego sets it took longer to assemble, and those weren't nearly as comfortable to sit on when complete. Uh, So if that sounds good to you, it's time to upgrade your sofa to one that actually stands up to your lifestyle. Get $75 off a new sofa and free one-week shipping by visiting burrow.com slash MLB. That's B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash MLB for $75 dollars off a new sofa. Thanks again to Burrow for supporting the show. All right. So uh, that that was Zach Cram uh, telling us why the Nationals have had it worse than the Mets. And since working with this ringer MLB MLB crew is often uh, a lot like coaching a college debate team here to present the rebuttal is uh, my producer on the Opposite side of the microphone, Bobby Van Wagoner. Bobby. <laughs> What's going on, Bauman? I don't know if it's necessarily a debate team. We were having a good-spirited conversation. Well, so why is... So this is the... I I wrote a column today essentially saying that, yeah, the Mets are, are a disaster, but it's a disaster that is partially of their own making and partially magnified by playing in New York and, and being a team that, you know, is run like it's... I don't know, no offense to Milwaukee. I love Milwaukee, but it's run like it's in Milwaukee and it has New York expectations. Um, yeah, you said that yesterday. I guess my question to you, just to prod on that a little bit, would be, what does that really mean? You wrote a column about it, but what does New York expectations really mean to you? Is it just that so, they expect them to be 10 games over 500 all the time or that they expect them to be competent? I think there's an expectation of competence. And I also think there's more people watching, so more people care. And so, you know, this is, uh, you know, the the Nationals are doing what they're doing. Cleveland's disappointing. Uh, the Angels are, the Angels and the A's went into the season with similar expectations, and they're both worse off than the Mets right now uh, in absolute terms. And, you know, they're both sort of flying under the radar. And I'll concede that the Mets are roughly 10,000 times weirder than any of those franchises. But, yeah. you know, I, I think the the circus element is a, is a large... So... And here's the here's the thing, like you would expect a national league team to win the pennant about once every 15 years. And the Mets win the pennant like clockwork every 15 years. So <laughs> like they are since their existence. <laughs> yeah. Like and and it's and the, the time period has gotten shorter the farther back you go because there were fewer teams in the National League. And so they've been to what f- uh five World Series now? Yeah. And they've won two? That's the definition of middle of the road. And, you know, right now they're as of as of uh, this recording, they're four games under 500. They're not in terrible shape. Uh, you know, they've got some good, some bad and and some, you know, some indifferent on their team right now. You know, this is not in any objective terms a dumpster fire. And yet it is. I think it is because they keep making the same mistake over and over again. Right. And that mistake being that 
they identify what they consider to be a playoff or a championship window, and they put one foot in and leave one foot nakedly out of that window. And by that, I mean, if you make the Edwin Diaz and Robinson Cano trade, you would think that you are now opening your window, and in that window, you want to build a championship contender around them. But the Mets, time and time again, don't do the next steps. And I guess, to some extent, I can identify with that as a person who frequently starts projects and doesn't finish all of the steps to complete them. But I'm not being paid handsomely as a front office executive of a baseball team in New York that should have a $210 million payroll, right? They don't, Mm -hmm. it, it seems like they haven't learned any lessons since 2015 and they're content on hoping that everything breaks right again for them instead of making their own luck like other teams have by spending up to their window. And you can criticize the Dodgers and the Yankees for making cost-cutting moves this past offseason and not going all in for guys like Manny Machado um, or Bryce Harper when they said they would years ago. But in the past 10 years, they've been spending up upwards of $210 million, and the Mets have been in the 160 range. And I know that those two numbers both sound incredibly large, but like you said, they're spending like they're in Milwaukee when they should be spending 205 210 And that extra $45 million means that the only signing of the offseason wouldn't be Wilson Ramos. I tend to think that that's a good signing and they should have made more moves like that, but they refused to do that. And then they they write it off by saying, well, we signed Wilson Ramos. What do you want from us? That was a smart move. Well, you should have done that five times over. Yeah. And I I am a little bit sympathetic to Bertie Van Wagen. And, and like, it seems like if he had a $200 million payroll to work with, this would not be the team he was putting out there. And honestly, this team that he is putting out there ought to like, it's, it's fine. I think it's good enough to win. Um, but I agree. I picked them to make the playoffs and people called me a Homer. I mean, it's a little bit of a Homer, but yeah, it's, (laughs) it's okay. You're entitled to do that. That's so like, here's the, 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 uh, juxtaposition, that really doesn't flatter them. Like they're, they're three big division rivals going into the season, the Phillies, the Braves and the nationals, all three of them signed at least one major free agent. Um, and the, the Mets big, like were a big market contender move was to take advantage of the Mariner salary dump to take on, uh, Robinson Cano. So they could get Edwin Diaz, um, without giving up, you know, they gave up two good prospects in Justin Dunn and Jared Kelnick. Um, but they would have had to give up more. And, but even then they had to give up prospects and they had to send Jay Bruce and Anthony Swarzak back to lessen the impact of, of taking on that salary. So it's just, it's exactly what you said. It's one foot in one foot out. It's, it's a really savvy deal executed in a way that really undermines a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the reason that that I like this trade for them in the first place. Uh, and, you know, as far Robinson Cano, um, the discourse around him remains as stupid as ever. Yes. Like he's got an 89 OPS plus two months into his Mets career. Like this is not our pools. Right. So, you know, anyway, I mean, I know but, you and Ben are going to talk about Robinson yeah, Cano in, about in about 15 minutes, but. I will say, just to give a little bit of a Robinson Cano rant while we're still here talking about this in in the context of the Mets, everyone was fine with this two months ago when the criticisms rolled in and they were saying that Robinson Cano is on this $240 million contract. He's going to be getting paid $24 million for the next three years. Um, You know, our boss, Sean Fennessy, was very wary of this and he remains very wary of this and is dreading, as a lot of Mets fans now are, the fact that they will have to be paying out this contract for the next three years, knowing what the Wilpons will 
knowing that the Willpons will use it as an excuse. But two months ago, everyone was saying, don't forget that Robinson Cano can actually hit. He's had a lot of solid years on the Mariners for the last three or four years, and he's been a three to four win player for that team. And in the context of this Mets team, a three to four win player in a middle infield position that can help a guy like Amon Rosario grow into his role in New York, that's a really valuable player. But now that he's not hitting, I guess it's what you're saying in that he has New York expectations now. And coupled with the fact that he used to be a New York player, and now the Mets are kind of getting him as a retread, I feel like that sort of concoction has blown this out of proportion. There's also a little bit of the the Adrian Beltre where like nobody back east has ever watched a Seattle Mariners game in their life. <laughs> and so like they expect him to be Yankees Robinson Cano, um, which he's not. And I don't think it's it's healthy to expect, but you know, like it's not out of the realm of possibility that two years from now he could be like Joe Maurer was to that twins team that made the wild card game. I think that, um, I think he, just defensively, it's going to be really tough. Yeah, and, for him to and remain having, valuable. And honestly, like that wouldn't be a problem if Pete Alonso didn't look like Mark McGuire. But it also you wouldn't know, be a problem just, if Jeff McNeil wasn't knocking on the door at second base, and now he's playing in left field. And the Mets always seem to have this thing where they're playing guys out of position, and the dudes are average to below average defenders. And this gets back to my original point that I was making to you yesterday. It's that. It's either they don't know how to build a contender in 2019, you know, caring about defense, caring about a bullpen, that kind of thing, or they just don't want to spend to do it. And this kind of move where they're moving Jeff McNeil around and he's not going to play at his natural position is just another notch on the belt of they don't really give a shit about things like defense. And how many years can you not care about defense before you start to realize we're a team predicated on our starting pitching. We need to have good defense behind them. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a matter of not playing. Uh, you know, I agree they're playing six guys out of position, but like <laughs> that's insane, uh, right? So, so here's here's part of the problem. Part of part of the problem is what you said earlier that the Wilpons are just going to use a contract as an excuse, like that. You know, like they they acted like they were paying David Wright's salary when they were getting seventy five percent of it passed or back on um, um, insurance. Insurance, yeah. And so, like when I talk about the problems being of their own making. Like most of it stems from the weird culture that comes down from ownership and ownership's unwillingness to to finance a team to meet the expectations that come with being the Mets. Yeah. Like you could you could be the Yankees if you wanted to. And they don't. <laughs> I hate hearing that. <laughs> you would love being the Yankees. Of trust course. me. It's, yeah. Um, so that's, that's why I hate problem. hearing it. It's bittersweet. So part of the but the other part of the problem is this is like the most baffling thing about the Mets to me in all of the the weird Mets bafflingness is they the way that they come up with player development successes is it's it's a it's an organization that like can't order stamps without <laughs> declaring war on Australia but they pulled Jacob DeGrom out of nowhere. They pulled Jeff McNeil out of nowhere. Part yeah. of the reason that they're having trouble finding a place to to put McNeil is that J.D. Davis, who they got for nothing from, from Houston. Another is, good signing. Another yeah. a, a, another one of the guys that that's, they should have done that three times over this offseason. Yeah. And so, I mean, part of the problem is like, okay, so you made this this creative deal for, for Cano and you've got these just, you know, four-win players pop... 
I think McNeil's going to be a four-win player or better. I don't think J.D. Davis is going to be a four-win player no. uh, or, or better. But, you know, you've got these bizarre player development successes popping out, up out of nowhere. And all the, and even guys like Conforto and Alonso, who you knew, who like we knew could hit, could hit when they were in college, just all happen to be corner guys. So, of course, their defense is bad. They're trying to get five of their six competent hitters into the lineup at the same time. I, you know, I... But as an I, organization... I, your strategy in free agency has to be contingent on what your player development looks like, right? So they have to know that Conforto projects to be a corner guy. They have to know that if they're going to move McNeil to the outfield, he's going to have to be a corner guy. They have to know that Pete Alonso can't really play any position. So they have to, when free agency rolls around two years ago and you decide you want to spend money on good guy Jay Bruce because he was a father to the clubhouse when he was around two years ago and the team sucked, maybe. We should have put that money towards someone like Lorenzo Cain, right? Because it, mm-hmm. it didn't take geniuses online to identify the fact that Lorenzo Cain was going to be worth the buck in Milwaukee. When they made that signing, they were like, that's a great signing. And guess what? Milwaukee was great last year. And he yeah. was fantastic for them last year. And he's the exact player that the Mets were missing. I mean, we were identifying AJ Pollock as a guy that the Mets might go out and I get. I was going to say, yeah. And, and that's a good signing for them, aside from the fact that if he went to the Mets, he would have immediately broke his kneecap by walking into a door the second mm-hmm. that he got into the clubhouse or something like that. Yeah. Last summer, Zach and I worked together on, like, what would you do? How would you rebuild the Mets under certain circumstances? And I ended up writing, like, 10,000 words that never got published. But one thing we worked out was, like, A.J. Pollock makes— would have made perfect sense for this team because if he's in center field, then you have Conforto and Nimmo in the corners, and then you have McNeil playing third base, and you know JD Davis is just you know bonus guy who you fit in wherever you can, and you know that's a, a solid lineup and yeah. a great rotation, and they've got you know Robert Gesellman's been fine in the bullpen. They don't have like that's not a deep bullpen, but they've got the. I don't know the best one inning closer in baseball as long as they insist on using him that way. But like the difference is the Phillies also got a Mariners middle infielder in a salary dump trade. And they also went out and signed McCutcheon and David Robertson and Bryce Harper and traded for JT Realmuto. And so it's like stark. it's the difference is stark. They're doing like 80% of what they need and they're getting 80% of the wins as a result, even if it comes in sort of a a strange way. And 100% of the the wins in this division was never going to be 120 wins. You know, there are not 110 possible wins to go around for a team in this division because the division is just too good. So if you're going to do 80% of the work and get 80% of the wins as a result, you know, you're only getting 84 wins max. You might get in the 70s like you did last year because the team that wins this division is going to win under 95 games the way that it looks right now. Yeah, probably. And like you're saying, you're listing off all these guys that the Mets, or that the Phillies went out and signed that, honestly, a lot of those guys could have been targets for a team like the Mets. Um, and, and they well, don't mean, have it's not the, like David Robertson's been Mariano Rivera, but like they could have made, I don't know, like the other guy I wanted for them was Marwin Gonzalez, who's had his ups and downs this year. And, yeah. But like he can play up the middle. Um, uh, the, the point is, there were free agents for this team's need. And, and, you know, they, and I, I say that as somebody who liked the Wilson Ramos signing. Yeah, I love the Wilson um, Ramos signing, especially in the context of the Phillies trading for JT Realmuto and giving up a lot for him. Mm-hmm. But I see why that made sense for the Phillies because it was all part of a bigger plan. If the Mets had done it, I, it wouldn't have been part of a bigger plan. It would have been the plan. And there is no one guy 
in this division, in baseball even anymore, with teams like the Astros, who are so stacked, with teams like the Red Sox, who won 108 games last year and cruised to the World Series, there's no one guy that's going to make you a contender, a, a World Series, legitimate World Series contender. And I guess to kind of wrap this up, you guys were talking about on the Nationals, they're a very top-heavy team. Well, the Mets are a very top-heavy team as well. It's just they're running into a lot of the same issues that the Nationals are having because every four or five days, guess who comes up in the rotation? It's Jason Vargas and Wilmer Font, who they just picked off off the scrap heap three weeks into the season. Your plan should not have gone out the window this early on, and you should not be turning to a guy who who the Rays dumped because he had terrible peripherals and was a below-replacement pitcher for them last year. Especially yeah. when there's guys on the market if you want to spend the money for them, like Dallas Keuchel, who won a Cy Young. And it's it's not even Dallas Keuchel. It's, you know, you maybe you make this move uh, and you're the team that, like, the Astros got Wade Miley for, like, $5 million this year. Yeah. And, you know, Gio Gonzalez was out there. And, you know, it's... If you don't think that those would have been smart moves for the Mets, like it's because you think this team is cursed, which I don't know, maybe they are, but I don't, you know, I don't uh, think that's any way to go about building a ball club. Yeah. I mean, and even the guy like Charlie Morton, who I know got a lot for what he is, but it's these kind of guys where they're a bona fide three starter. It's not a fingers crossed three starter or a fingers crossed four starter. And Jason Vargas, I don't even think qualifies as that. He's just not no, a not major anymore. league starter. I didn't hate that. I didn't hate that signing when they made it, and uh, <laughs> and I was I was I was wrong. <laughs> I will admit I, <laughs> that one I missed. <laughs> what for a while he was like the most overperforming pitcher in baseball history a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, it wasn't a ton of money. It, 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 even if you, you will not talk to the Jason Vargas signing at the end of this I'm, podcast, I'm not trying to. I'm just trying to. <laughs> to justify my own bad opinions retroactively. All right, you got anything else? No, no, that just about does it. You feel better? I definitely don't feel good, but maybe better. We'll see how I feel in about an hour. Okay, well, it's important to talk about this, these things. (laughs) Uh, All right, so uh, we'll be back with Ben Lindbergh right after this. Let's get something straight. Your teeth. Smile Direct Club straightens your teeth for 60% less in braces with invisible aligners sent directly to you. Simply go online and book a free 3D scan at one of their smile shops or order an at-home impression kit. Then they'll email a preview of your new smile and once you get your aligners, one of Smile Direct Club's duly licensed doctors will check in on your progress every 90 days. Visit SmileDirectClub.com for real before and after photos from some of 550,000 plus satisfied grinners. And exclusive for our listeners, you can get $100 off your invisible aligners when you go to smiledirectclub.com slash podcast and use offer code MLB100. You'll also get a $25 Amazon gift card with a free 3D scan at one of their smile shops or a $25 rebate on an at-home impression kit. That's $100 off at smiledirectclub.com slash podcast offer code MLB100. Smiledirectclub.com slash podcast offer code MLB100. All right, let's bring this podcast in for a landing with uh, Ben Lindbergh. Ben. Hi. So the New Yorkers are mad about Robinson Cano. Yeah, what else uh, is new? What's all this new again? Well, I was going to say, this is so old that you wrote the definitive (laughs) Robinson Cano hustle story. I checked almost five and a half years ago, I think four jobs ago for you when you were (laughs) a baseball prospectus. Yeah. So, uh, (laughs) 
Why don't you? I probably could have written it before then because Cano has been in the big leagues for 15 years and this goes back close to the beginning. So yeah, find a new complaint about Robinson Cano because he's not hustling. That's the oldest one in the book. So yeah, I wrote about this actually just after he signed with the Mariners and Yankees fans were not very broken up about it at the time, maybe because of the contract terms, but also I think because they were really just butthurt about the not running out ground balls. And I'm not going to argue the facts of the case here. Robinson Cano doesn't hustle all the time. He does occasionally cost his team singles. And I don't know that these recent examples really were cases where he cost his team anything. I think both of these cases that Mets fans are mad about right now I don't think if he had been busting it out of the box, he actually would have beaten out either. He had excuses for both of them, not great excuses. One of them he thought was foul. The other one, he thought that there were two outs because the scoreboard said two outs, which is not a great excuse because players are responsible for knowing how many outs there are. Yeah, Yeah, right. So I don't think that he would have beaten out either of these. And that's part of why I think we make too much of this whole hustle thing, because There aren't that many plays where it really makes a difference to the play and then to the game and then to the season. It's like you have to add up all of those things and see when does this actually matter. I think a lot of times when people get mad about players not running out ground balls, nothing different would have happened, would have happened. They wouldn't have made it anyway. And so you're referring to this story I did for BP way back in 2014, where I tried to calculate exactly what Robinson Cano was costing his teams by not hustling out every ground ball. And that was pre-StatCast era, ancient times. So I had to make some assumptions about his speed, but I compared like his ground ball distribution to other left-handers and the rate of infield hits that he beat out. And I came to, I thought, a fairly solid conclusion that he cost his team something like four singles a season, which is not nothing. And I did a comparison to Derek Jeter, who, of course, was the king of hustle. And I found that he showed up in the opposite direction. He maybe gained his team an extra five singles or so relative to the average hitter. So it's not nothing, but it is sort of nothing when you figure that he could actually be benefiting himself in certain ways. And that was one of Cano's arguments at the time because he was being criticized at that time and Yankees hitting coach Kevin Long had talked about it. And he said that Cano sometimes justified it by saying that it kept him fresh, it kept him healthy. And I think there's something to that because Robinson Cano, the only time he was on the injured list or then the disabled list for the first like decade plus of his career was in 2006, his second season, when he strained a hamstring, rounding first or nearing second on a double, and he was busting at that time. And he cost himself 42 days, and that's a lot of time to miss if you're as good a player as Robinson Cano. Dozens of singles he could hit in those 42 days, yeah. So I don't know if that was a turning point for him where he said, okay, I'm not doing this again, or whether he already wasn't usually running that hard, but that was an example of the downside of hustling. You occasionally hurt yourself. And Robinson Cano has been very durable throughout his career. He did not go back on the injured list until 2017. So he went like 11 years without going on the injured list again. And the next time he did, it was because of a strained quad that he strained while rounding first on a double. So this is almost the only time he's ever hurt himself is when he does run hard and he pulls a muscle or something. And because Robinson Cano is so good, he's like a Hall of Fame player that A, we're we're just kind of nitpicking here. And B, if he did save himself like 
one week off at some point because he strained something, not necessarily even an IL stint, but just was day-to-day for a while. He's been so productive over the course of his career that that's all it takes to wipe out the value of those extra four singles or so a season. So I think the fact that he's been as durable as he has actually speaks well of his approach, which I'm not saying never hustle. Like if it comes down to the season deciding game and you're trying to keep your team from being eliminated and it's a tie game or something. I mean, there are moments where you have to hustle and it doesn't matter if you run the risk of hurting yourself. But over the long haul, I think this is sort of a discretion is the better part of our situation. I think it probably has made Robinson Cano more valuable over the last 15 years. So my question to you, uh, this is, you know, not hustling, not giving a hundred percent all the time, which is something that, you know, I would love to just follow the people who levy this charge at athletes around at their jobs and see (laughs) how much of their time they spent, you know, whether they ever poop on the clock, um, (laughs) Which I'm in favor of, by the way. Are you uh, not you know. allowed to do that? <laughs> I think well, you could do okay. that. Okay, so yeah, you can. All right, <laughs> we both. And work you were for the worried rigor, we weren't right? going to have anything. We weren't going to have anything to talk about. I need to no. check my contracts. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. Obviously, you can poop on the clock, but like taking the you know the the 15 minute post lunch dump in the secluded bathroom. That's what I'm talking about. Sure. I I have lingered in the stall in, in some jobs that I cared less about than my current one. I mean. I also work from home, so really, well, this sure, is- so do I. So <laughs> we can do our whole job from there if we want to. Oh man, <laughs> I never considered about. that. Yeah. Well, I guess I can't record the podcast from there because, like, there's you know lots of <laughs> hard surfaces and probably bad for yeah for bad acoustics. acoustics. Yeah. Yeah. You thought we wouldn't have stuff to talk about today. <laughs> um, so there's that, but I, I'm curious. You you know went to really incredible pains to put forth an empirical case that. Uh, that Robinson Cano sort of violating these very nebulous old school norms was actually to his and his team's benefit. And uh, did anyone find that persuasive? (laughs) I don't think the complaints stopped. I don't think everyone said, oh, okay, as evidenced by this recent episode. I will uh, say I found that useful, (laughs) you know, just to have something to link back to. I've linked back to that that piece (laughs) More times than I can count. Yeah. Um, I tried to repeat this actually with StatCast data when the whole Manny Machado hustle episode came up, but I was not able to obtain the data that I would have needed to to actually quantify it. But I think it was helpful to show just the scale of things because, again, I'm not disputing that he sometimes lollygags. And I understand why that frustrates people because fans really care about the outcome of the game. And I think it's frustrating for them when a player gives the appearance of not caring. And it's kind of like the shift. You know how people get mad about the shift or sometimes even pitchers get mad about the shift because sometimes it backfires and sometimes that ball goes through the open hole and you say, oh, no, why did we shift? This is hurting us. But you have to look at the long run and say, no, in the long run, it probably helps you and it saves you some hits. And you remember the ones that it costs you and you don't remember the ones that it saves you. And I think that's sort of similar. Like we can't see what would have happened to Robinson Cano if he had run as hard as he possibly could have on every ground ball. But maybe he does the Adam Eaton thing and the Bryce Harper thing and he lands funny on the bag and he's out for months at a time. I mean, that sort of thing does happen. And if it happens once, that's enough to to wipe out that extra value of four singles a season or whatever it is. So I get it. 
But I think a lot of the frustration currently comes down to the fact that Robinson Cano is not hitting. It's much easier to forgive. It's never about this. Right. It's much easier to forgive this behavior if he is Robinson Cano, as he has been in the past, a Hall of Fame caliber player. And currently, he is not that. He has not been that this season, to my surprise, really. So that, I think, focuses the anger and the ire that is already bubbling under the surface. Because if you're not contributing in other ways and then you're taking it easy on the ground ball, I think everyone thinks, especially if a, a player's making lots of money to, make play, to play baseball, as is the case with Robinson Cano, there's even less understanding on the part of fans. So I think it's that. Obviously, in some cases, I think maybe there is a, a racial component. I'm to, glad you brought that up because, you know, I, yeah. think, I think that's it's obvious at least to anybody listening that we were going to at least mention that because you mentioned Manny Machado. I was going to say there's the the famous uh, juxtaposition between in the like 2009 to 2011-12 Phillies where Jimmy Rollins got benched and made headline news like the two times in his life that he didn't hustle and Mm -hmm. Cliff Lee was a folk hero despite having hustled you know, two or three times in his career. Yeah. Uh, so, right. And I, I'm not I think saying that, that's responsible for Cano. It's not, I, yeah, I, I, you know, Cano it's complicated. A, it's a real but, phenomenon here. But I and, think it's, it's, uh, and in Machado's case, he straight up said he doesn't hustle sometimes, which was maybe a mistake. And, and he later mm-hmm. walked that back. He didn't hustle it back. He just walked it back. Very but, good. Yeah, uh, but I I think that kind but of but it's worth the, mentioning the implicit biases. Yeah, right. That, that, Some guys you know, get labeled as hustlers right. or you know gritty or whatever, and and that can sometimes it's like body language can be a deceptive thing because like Robinson Cano just looks so smooth when he does everything that I think that probably amplifies it sometimes. Like there are guys who just look max effort all the time, and Cano is just smooth and easy and natural, and that makes him a joy to watch hit when he's hitting. But I think it probably just focuses even more attention on the fact that he's not running all out. And the guys who look who uh, look like they they're putting out max effort to perform basic baseball tasks tend not to be as good. So yeah, that's- right. Yeah, I mean that's part of it, right? If if you don't have the skill that Robertson Cano does, you better hustle all the time, just because you don't want to give anyone the impression that you are not hustling at all out effort all the time. And and maybe that is part of why Cano is coming in for this criticism now, because he at least this season has not been his old skilled self, and so maybe he has to transition to the the hustle phase of his career. But you know, he's not a super fast guy. He's never been a super fast guy. But I think no one questions his work ethic in. In other ways, I think people think he's dedicated and he puts the time in and hitting and he keeps himself in shape. So it's not like a generalized thing. It's just this running to first base thing, which makes me think that there really is a, a calculus going on here in his head where he's just decided that this is actually benefiting him and his teams. Yeah. And this opposed to Pete Alonso, who's just so slow, you can't tell if he's running flat out <laughs> yeah. uh, to first base. Although he doesn't really have to, to run no. to first base that much. He, he, he tends to, really far. yeah, he tends to trot around the bases. <laughs> right. Um, so one other thing that, unless you've got anything more to say about Robinson Cano and, and the hustle phenomenon. No, we I think we've, second topic. We've, we've convinced everyone by now. Yeah, good. So, yeah. All right. Uh, so there was a, a headline that uh, came across the wire, courtesy of Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic, uh, came across the wire because this is 1974, <laughs> um, that uh, they caught my eye and I wanted to, to run past you. So Carter Stewart, who is a, a pitcher um, for, let me see, Eastern Florida, uh, Eastern Florida State College. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the number 
eight overall pick by the uh, Atlanta Braves last year, did not sign. Apparently, there was a little bit of the the Brady Aiken where there was a dispute over um, over his bonus demands versus medical scans, and so uh, he went to JUCO. Was predicted to go, you know, probably sandwich round, early second round, uh, depending on his uh, uh, on his bonus demands and how various other dominoes in the draft fell. Uh, He has signed with the Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks of Nippon Professional Baseball, which is uh, fascinating to me. It is, because this is not the typical type of player who goes over there. Usually when American players go to play in NPP, it's either someone at the very end of his career who just can't find a job or at least an attractive one in the majors anymore, or it's someone who's maybe a quadruple A type player and and has been in the minors for a while and is kind of bouncing around and maybe has a skill set that would work better there or just wants to make more than minor league money and so goes over there. But this is different. This is the start of a career. And occasionally we do see an anomalous signing like this, like the Diamondbacks signed a 23-year-old Japanese pitcher last year, Shumpei Yoshikawa, who- Very good. Yeah, so he had uh, just bypassed the the typical posting system and come over. And so occasionally you see an exception like this and you wonder if it's going to start a trend. And with Carter Stewart, I mean, I've been thinking of it in terms of, okay, why is this attractive to a young American player? And in Carter Stewart's case, it's because he has this injury that came up when he was drafted and there's not as much interest in him. And it seemed like there was some chance that he might be a first rounder this year because he's draft eligible again, but probably he would slip to the second round because of this injury. And it seems to have affected his pitching or at least the perception of his pitching. So he may have just figured, well, I I can get more money going over to Japan. And also it seems like we don't know the precise terms, but it seems like he's worked out an agreement here where he's not subject to the typical posting system where he'd have to play for an NPP team for 10 years before he could come back. It seems like there's some sort of special arrangement here where he can kind of come back before that and the team can just decide to post him. And so maybe the team figures, well, if he kind of rehabilitates himself here, we can post him and he we can get that money and other teams can sign him. And he figures, well, I can go over there and I can demonstrate that I'm healthy and I can face high level competition. And so maybe in this yeah. case, it, it works out for both sides. There aren't that many cases like this, not just because most draft eligible players want to enter the minor leagues and get to the majors as fast as they can, but also because you would think that the interest wouldn't always be mutual because NPP is a really high level league. It's like between AAA and the majors. So there aren't that many guys just coming out of the draft who would be above average performers at that level, I wouldn't think. I would expect him to have some struggles there. So it's not a cakewalk. No. And I mean, they have their own developmental system. So he can, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like he's going to be dropped right into the equivalent of a big league rotation at age 19 or 20 or however old he is. I I like this a lot because there's... There's a, you know, obviously risk for both sides because maybe he's hurt. Maybe he's just not that guy. Uh, But if he is, you know, they just got the equivalent of a top 10 MLB pick, which Mm -hmm. would be huge for for any MPB team. And he can go get paid and develop. And, you know, we saw what being able to uh, to compete against advanced competition at that kind of young age did for Shohei Otani's development. Yeah. Um, And so I'm, you know, it's it's really fascinating. I. I'm also I would say like there's there are avenues in basketball and, and ice hockey for 
North American players to bypass the draft or to um I guess not bypass the draft, but to uh to bypass college or you know the last phase of the amateur system and go get paid and play against higher level competition. And uh we've seen a couple American basketball players do it. Austin Matthews, who was the number one overall pick uh in the NHL in twenty sixteen, I believe, um, went and played a year in Zurich before he was before he was drafted. Uh and I'm always I don't know, I I think it would be a cool thing to do. I think it's a a neat way to leverage like international commerce mm-hmm. on behalf of an athlete. If yeah. if you have the, but I it's it's tough, you know, being a, a teenager and just deciding to go live and work in a foreign country, whatever that foreign country is. Right. Uh, so I'm I'm always very impressed by the athletes who have uh, the self confidence to take this kind of non traditional route, and I mean, I guess, and that extends to somebody like Bryce Harper too, who got you know got his GED and went it went to JUCO to to get into the draft a year earlier. Like it takes uh, a, not just athletic talent, but like a you know a strength of will to to right. have the level of confidence to to do that. You know, as yeah. as a young young athlete. It is really intriguing because just the idea of the draft is so restrictive. And and we saw it with Kyler Murray, of course, a completely different situation. But when you have another viable option out there, suddenly the bids go way up. And so nowadays when you have the draft spending limits, so teams are, are limited to certain draft slots and bonuses and you can only earn so much. And then, of course, there's the whole system where you have to rise up through the minors and make no money while you're making much of that journey and then you get to the majors and you don't really cash in until several years into your major league career if you're fortunate enough to make it that far so you can see why you would look for some sort of loophole or some other option to do an end around on this system and so i'll be watching to see if carter stewart actually parlays this into more money and and is able to come back if that's what he wants to do and and just proceed with his career because again i'm I'm not sure that this is a, a viable or appealing option for a lot of players like Carter Stewart, but there are occasional guys like that. There are occasional guys who just their offers fall down because they get an MRI and it shows something and suddenly they they don't have the opportunity to make as much money as they thought. And if Carter Stewart actually blazes this trail and succeeds, then maybe it does become a more appealing option for other players. Yeah. And the the idea of spending your early 20s in Japan instead of going to college or going through the minor sure. league system gets a whole lot less daunting for the second guy. So mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, we, I don't know, I guess I'll speak for you and say we wish him all the best. This is a very yeah. interesting thing he's doing and, and uh, good for him for betting on himself. Indeed. All right. Well, uh, I think that that pretty much covers it. So all right. uh, thanks for joining me, Ben. And uh, we'll reconvene next week. Talk to you then. That'll just about do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks, as always, to Zach and Ben. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for playing both ways today. Thanks to Mike Rizzo, Robinson Cano, and Carter Stewart for giving us stuff to talk about. Uh, College baseball conference tournaments are underway. South Carolina plays LSU tonight, Tuesday night, to try to keep their season alive. And there will be more action across the country all week. So if you like playoff baseball, now is the time. And last but not least, thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time. Hold up. 
Support for today's show comes from Smile Direct Clubs. Smile Direct Clubs straightens your teeth for 60% less embraces with invisible aligners sent directly to you. And exclusive for our listeners, you can get $100 off your invisible aligners when you go to smiledirectclub.com slash podcast and use offer code MLB100. You'll also get a $25 Amazon gift card with a free 3D scan at one of their smile shops or a $25 rebate on an at-home impression kit. That's smiledirectclub.com slash podcast, offer code MLB100. 